interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Yeah, yeah the question is, uh, I made a statement about um, Christianity uh, encouraging the preservation and promotion of the indigenous name for God. Um, and the question is whether there are exceptions to that in South America, Central America, where, um, in fact, many of these cultures were wiped out, um, but that the indigenous, the Christian saints, names for Christian saints, were then applied to the local deities and local uh, divinities, correct? Well, the, I, I visited Argentina several years ago, and because you know the history of Argentina, there are the, uh, the Indians were eradicated, hmm. just wiped out. Um, but that also meant that Christianity never became an indigenous religion. Uh, Argentina is the old Christendom, the old idea of religion as domain transplanted to the new world. Um, and that, again, doesn't really make my point, that uh, indigenous forms of the religion um, would be very difficult to create uh, without some sort of translation into indigenous terms. Um, in other parts of Latin America, where there was a slowness to embrace the indigenous culture, and that had political reasons, going back to, I don't know, 1502, when Philip II of Spain sent a letter to, to, the, to the Spanish uh, authorities, what they called New Hispaniola, uh, to say that the state had the authority to appoint the church, the bishops, the clergy, to give them land, and to determine um, how the Indians should serve the church and the state, and what proportion of the labor of the Indians uh, should be given over as tax, the encomienda system. Uh, there you had tremendous abuses, tremendous abuses, whole populations wiped out. But you see, again, my point is, that's precisely my point about Christianity, that its future is very much bound up with the vitality of the indigenous culture, and that where you destroy that, you also destroy the possibility of an indigenous Christianity uh, developing. Now, it was not really till the 1960s with the liberation, um, theology of liberation movement in Latin America, that Latin American theologians, Catholic and Protestant, said, let us go back to the Jesus of history, <laughs> because the Christ of doctrine has been so alienating because the Christ of doctrine is a European construction. It's a Western construction which denies us our culture. 
So they say, let's go back to the Jesus of history. Now, if you know your enlightenment, you know this is exactly the opposite in the enlightenment. Albert Schweitzer, the quest of the historical Jesus, that the more you strip away the history of Jesus and his ethnic particularity, the more abstract you make Christianity, the more universal and general you make it, and the more valid. <laughs> the liberation theologians were saying the opposite. On the contrary, it's when you abstract Christianity and make it doctrinal that you actually limit it culturally and make it merely the creature of the West. So liberation theology went back. Uh, based Christian communities became precisely uh, that, to say Christianity is a growth and a development from the ground up, not from the top down. And, and that is my point, that renewal and revitalization of Christianity is a vernacular grassroots phenomenon. In Islam, by the way, in Islam, reform is invariably the process by which the local is stripped of its content to bring the local closer and closer um, in practice and in profession to what the scholars, the ulama, would call the orthodox criterion of Mecca and Medina. And the pilgrimage, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, is like a pipeline that helps to sort of flush out uh, the local and the indigenous of any merit whatsoever. So, but it's a very, it's, the only other place is Hawaii. Uh, but Hawaii, as you know, um, Christianity really failed to take root um, because of this force uh, which was brought to bear on the population. Uh, but Hawaii started right. Uh, 1822, uh, the old American missionary Bingham writing that the missionary press in Honolulu uh, was the engine room of Hawaiian national and cultural uh, identity. Because Hawaiian language was reduced to writing, printers, uh, documents were printed in the language, whereas the palace, the king, the queen, the queen of Hawaii was busy westernizing and modernizing the society and going to, to Europe and to Japan to borrow from the royalty, to make Hawaiian society more modern, the missionaries were saying, let us train the young people in their own heritage. 1820s. And today, of course, that's been very much an underground movement in Hawaii for cultural nationalism. Uh, the question is whether conversion as the material improvement of conditions of society, um, which is the traditional way of understanding conversion, improving people's situations. In the old days, they used to say that uh, sanitation and salvation went together. Um, uh, and whether what I was describing of Africa is different, radically different from that, and my answer is yes. Uh, most uh, African uh, Christian converts don't really have electricity or running water, and suddenly a vast proportion of them have had no education or very little education. Um, when I go to a particular church in my own home country in the Gambia, a Catholic uh, church, 
I would say maybe 50%, 60% of the people there who come from villages, maybe more than that, um, are barely literate, can barely read or write. So it's, yeah, I'm saying, in other words, I'm saying that there is a reality about religion which is an independent reality. Religion is too generous. It is a phenomenal reality onto itself, and it, it sort of creates different, different patterns of responses. And the variety of response, um, for me, merely indicates the reality of the phenomenon itself. Yeah, disarming the fundamentalists, the question is, uh, what are the basic uh, points about fundamentalism in Christianity and Islam that one one would like to see disarmed? Uh, But that phrase, disarming the fundamentalists, was really uh, a sub-part of the title for this morning, for earlier this morning. And I can answer that by saying, the thing that Fundamentalists, fundamentalists themselves are not a problem for us. They only become a problem when terrorism is involved. That is to say, when there is senseless destruction of life and property, whether it's with the abortion uh, clinics or with medical personnel connected with those clinics or whether it's 9-11 in the United States. That's when fundamentalism become a public problem, all right? So the question we have to think is, what makes a fundamentalist a terrorist? You know, there's one step that is necessary to turn a fundamentalist into a terrorist. What is that? Because if we know that, maybe perhaps that's where we should address the question of preempting terrorism. And I'm saying to you that I think one of the problems, one of the reasons why fundamentalists become terrorists is because of a blanket judgment which is almost Manichaean in its severity. Namely, that their side is the side of virtue, the side of truth, and instead of that leading them to say, okay, we'll have nothing to do with the world, they make the fa- take the further step of saying, we have a right to take on the world. We have a right to take on the world. You see, many fundamentalists, we know this with American uh, millenarian movements, um, will skulk away into their own corner and mind their own business. They say, we don't want to be contaminated by the world. Right? Just stay there. But these fundamentalists don't want to go into a ghetto. They want to come out and take on the world. And it seems to me then they have a rather naive uh, understanding of the world, a naive idea that power somehow will become purified and virtuous once they hold it. That, That somehow there will be a kind of, what shall I say, an alchemical transformation <laughs> that this sort of dross of the human enterprise with its messiness and its compromises and its deals that all of this will 
suddenly be changed into a reign of virtue and truth and light and love. But this is very naive. It is also surely, surely from the religious point of view, from both the point of view of Islam and Christianity, this is unfaithful to God. A Muslim scholar in the 19th century said that intolerance is a form of disobedience to God. Because, he said, the intolerant person wants to force the hand of God. And the fundamentalist wants to force the hand of God. Um, and that, it seems to me, is a great, uh, is a great scandal. Uh, it's a religious scandal, it's not just a political problem, which deserves military reprisal, but it is a moral problem for us. Religious people have a right to challenge that interpretation of the divine mandate for life. That's really what I mean. So we have to preempt the fundamentalist. But it's a big subject I'm just indicating. There's a question here. Yeah. Well, I think one of the major reasons is that liberation theology is an offshoot of Marxism. It's a Marxist critique of society of power relations. You know, the whole sort of dialectics. Um, you know, the right people and the wrong people. Um, the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, the victims and the victimizers. You know, this kind of dichotomization of society. It's a kind of Marxist critique. Marx it belongs really with the European intellectual tradition. <laughs> so the irony is that while Christianity would like to invoke vernacular local reasons for why the gospel should be embraced, Marxism shifts the attention to the enemy as the outsider. Well, you know, in Africa, the enemy is not just the outsider. The enemy are internal spiritual forces and powers. The enemy is within, the bad thoughts, witchcraft. <laughs> Most Africans are preoccupied with those questions, even today, even today. So, you see why Marxism doesn't quite cut it? I mean, you need to really have a certain intellectual sophistication. Uh, by the way, the same thing in China. <laughs> the Chinese are really now beginning to divest themselves of the Marxist baggage. And that is why a lot of philosophical thinking in China, interested in Christianity, is for some reason bypassing the liberation theology phase in Latin America. They know, they know about liberation theology in Latin America, but they're saying that doesn't deal with the problems we face here. It's very interesting. Uh, how do I think China can be insulated from the Enlightenment, given the enormous number of Chinese students who are studying in Western universities, including the United States? Correct? Well, um, China already has an intellectual tradition uh, in terms of Confucian ethics. And that intellectual tradition is not predicated on the Enlightenment 
project, the Enlightenment project, as expressed by Kepler and Kant, um, which Muslim scholars in the Middle Ages also picked up long before Kepler and Kant, was how do you connect, how do you harmonize this apparent manifestation of reality of truth in nature? How did Kepler put it? That if I put out my hands, I can almost touch the stars as the material manifestation of the divine. But when I look within me, the moral law within, I am, I'm, I'm sort of, I have to sort of grope in that. And so Kepler was saying, there must be a way to connect those two. Can't pick this up, I think, from Kepler and try to do the same thing. Muslim scholars in the Middle Ages picked up this idea in terms of the microcosm, the human person as a manifestation of the macrocosm of the heaven. Uh, I can best illustrate this with the dervish, you know, the whirling dervishes. You know, the disciple who is turning and twirling in the middle of the circle. It's like a planet. And it's a miniature of, of the heavenly bodies that are also gyrating, turning on their own axis. And the disciple, the, the murid, is trying to find a light that can pierce from the heavens down to the earthly, to the human. Now, China has never been preoccupied with that question. Never been. <laughs> um, yes, Tao, as you know, talks about the heavenly mandate and the heavenly king, which is different from Confucius. And then Buddhism came in from India. Uh, pure land, and inserted uh, elements of purified Hindu ideas into the mix. And then China was much more interested in the maintenance of the social and the political order, so that the family became really a miniature, a, uh, um, uh, a reflection of the, of the state structure. So Confucian ethics is very bureaucratic, very interested in just maintaining the order, and filial piety as a way of cementing the social, uh, the social network. So the Enlightenment doesn't figure here. Now, I have to say to you that the professor of philosophy at Peking is a student of Kant, of the Enlightenment philosophy. He was at this conference in Shanghai. But I shouldn't say this because I'm on record. Um, but I'll, I'll have to say in a different sort of way, that many of these intellectuals who are reluctant to embrace Christianity openly for political reasons will confide to you in private that they find the case Christianity is making intellectually compelling. And also let me add that they are busy now translating Western classics into Chinese, including the great Jewish philosophers, Herschel, Kaplan, all these people, Buber, uh, Levinas, these are now being translated into Chinese. That's why I say Chinese will receive Western ideas, but without the Enlightenment framework.